0: Well, we're in the second week of our series, Walking This Way, or Walk With Jesus, and we want to um, begin with looking at Paul's walk with Christ. And so let's look at it by um, starting in Acts chapter 6, a brief passage there, and then moving to 7. Chapter 6, verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the peoples. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, that is is as it was called, of the Cyrenians and and the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and, and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, "'We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God.' they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. his execution. In 2005, Mary Johnson went to Stillwater Prison in Minnesota, never been there before. She was there to see a young man whose name was Israel, and his name, as all of you know, meant one who wrestles with God, and he certainly did. He was serving a 25-year sentence for killing Mary's 20-year-old son first time she had seen him since the trial there in a large meeting room they shared their stories they shared their past and they shared their pain finally in a moment of grace Mary reached over and took Israel's hand and said I forgive you from the bottom of my heart and in that instant Israel said to her May I hug you? And she stood, and as she stood, she cried, and as she cried, she started to fall. And Israel grabbed her. He said, I hugged her like I would my own mother. Minutes later, when she left the room, she thought to herself, I just hugged the man who killed my son. She said instantly all of the anger, all of the animus, all of the pain for those 12 years disappeared. And for the next five years, every week, Mary went to Stillwater Prison and spent time with Israel. And when he was released, she was there to meet him. And she took him home and said, You'll live with me. For you, Israel, are my spiritual son. A reporter found out and he came to the home and he interviewed them. And he said to Mary, Have you forgotten all that he did? She said, No, I remember it every day. We talk about it, we share our stories, we share the pain. But there's never any anger, there's never any sadness, there's never any shame, there's always an overwhelming sense of gratitude and praise. 1982, Brennan Manning moved to New Orleans. And in order to get ready to move there, he decided to do a little research. He wanted to see what the spiritual condition of these people in the bayou was. And he discovered about a hundred years ago, people in Louisiana never used the term born again, though they use it all the time now. They never talked about someone coming to know Christ and being born again. What they said was, that person has been gripped by the power of a great affection. And Manning said it wasn't until four years later that he understood what that meant. He was invited to go to an Amish farm in central Pennsylvania. When he showed up, there was 84-year-old widower with his four children. There was Barbara, who was 57, and she ran the place. There were Rachel and Sam, her sister and brother, who helped her run the, the place. And then there was 47-year-old Elam, who was severely mentally challenged. And he just did the best he could. Brennan said, I got out of the car, and as soon as I got out of the car, around the barn came Elam with a pitchfork. I'd never seen him before, he had never seen me, but he dropped the pitchfork and he ran for me. And about two feet away, he jumped up, legs and arms wrapped around me, and he began to kiss me on the lips. Brennan Manning said I was stunned. I was totally self-conscious, but suddenly in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus freed me from all propriety and I buried my lips into his. I returned his kiss with enthusiasm. Minutes later, he jumped down and he took both hands around my arm and he led me on a tour of the farm. He showed me everything. Thirty minutes later, we're sitting next to each other having dinner. He's sitting right there by me. About halfway through the meal, I turned around suddenly and inadvertently, I buried my elbow into his ribs. It had to hurt. He didn't cry, he didn't scream, he just started crying like a baby. And then what he did next undid me. He slid over and he sat on my lap. He began to kiss me on the forehead, the cheeks, and the chin, and suddenly I was gripped by the power of a great affection. In that moment, I saw Jesus in Elam Zook, loving me for who I was, not who I should be. Loving me in the state of grace and disgrace, in a state of caution and no caution, without boundary, without failure, without regret. Elam loved me completely. Now, let me ask you something. What would cause a mother to go to a prison to see one inmate, a man who had murdered her own son? What would cause her to do that every week for five years and then when he's released to take him to her house and adopt him as her son? What would cause a middle-aged priest to suddenly know with an Amish guy on his lap, the depth of Jesus' love for him. The same thing that would cause a fighter of Christ to become a follower of Christ. The same thing that would cause a man who wanted to stamp out the faith to begin to embrace it, to walk with Jesus. An overwhelming sense of gratitude an overwhelming knowledge of what it means to experience grace. We see it in Saul's life. Let's dig in. First of all, notice the name. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, one of the things that Luke does, more than any other gospel writer, is he gives us transitional stories. Stories that transition us from one scene to another. And here in chapters 6 and 7, he does it in spades. He introduces a man named Stephen who will take us from where the church is, only in Jerusalem, to the church now scattered around the known world. And he does it with a man named Stephen. And it's interesting, the word Stephen, the name Stephen literally means crowned. When the Greeks wanted to talk about victory and power, they'd often use a symbol of a crown. When they wanted to talk of royalty's victory, they'd use a crown. But here, Luke is using Stephen as an illustration of a greater power, a greater royalty than what's achieved by a human being. He shows us the power and victory in Jesus in the midst of spiritual defeat and darkness. Look how he describes Stephen, full of grace and power. There's no other person in the Bible that's described as full of grace but one man, Jesus. And notice, it's not the power of Stephen that's on display here. It's the power of Jesus. In the mid-1800s, A group of businessmen in Chicago wanted to have a series of revival meetings, but they had a question, who should we invite to speak? And all together, after a little bit of a discussion, they all agreed on D.L. Moody. And one man was against it, and he said to the crowd, why do you want to have Moody? Does he have a corner on the Holy Spirit? One man said no, but the Holy Holy Spirit seems to have every corner of D.L. Moody, and so they invited Moody to speak. And that's what we see in Stephen. Stephen. The Holy Spirit has every corner of His life. He is full of grace and full of power. Second, notice the naysayers. Look at verse 11. And they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard Him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now the word naysayer means one who denies, one who refutes, someone who opposes something or someone. And what Luke is saying is that as some people hear... What Stephen has to say, and they see him do all of these miraculous signs, they begin to challenge him. And Luke describes it this way, some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freemen rose up and began to dispute with Stephen. Now, who are these people? Luke says they're from around the world. They are Jews who have been imprisoned for their zealous commitment to the Jewish faith. They've been released from prison, but they still have that jealous commitment. And so they hear what Stephen has to say. They see what he's doing in the name of Jesus Christ, and they stand against him. They challenge him, but they can't win the argument. And so they begin to do what the religious leaders did in Jerusalem, and that was they begin to conspire, and they say, how can we defeat this man? In fact, the word translated instigate really means to collude. They begin to come together and they nucleate a plan. And the question many biblical scholars have asked is, why would these people from all over the world, why would they come together? What was the catalyst for this? What was the catalyst for their collusion? And according to many, there was one man behind it whose name was Saul. In order to be successful against Stephen, they have to have the permission of Rome and the sanction of the Sanhedrin and the one person in their midst who would have had that power and that authority would be Saul. And it's an amazing thing. Saul was trained by a man named Gamaliel. And earlier in this chapter, we see that Gamaliel counsels all of those who will listen not to cause Stephen any grief. Let him go. In fact, Gamaliel says the more we attack these Christians, the more they grow. And yet Saul disagrees with his own teacher. And he incites these free men And he goes after the one who is full of grace and full of power. Third, notice the need. Look at verse 54 of chapter 7. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. You know what the Greek literally says? They go crazy. Now think of the context. Stephen has... All Stephen's done is answer their questions. All He's done is pointed them to their need. All He's then done is said, you need this grace of Jesus Christ in your life. Speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He tells them the truth about themselves, and they hate Him for it. Years ago, Rodney Dangerfield said, as he always did, I get no respect. I told my psychiatrist that everybody hates me. He said, "Don't be silly. Not everybody knows you yet." (laughs) Now, the force of the Greek is stunning. In the face of divine grace, their anger turns to rage. Have you ever seen that in your own life? Have you ever talked to someone about Christ? Have have you ever known anyone who was went from sort of anger to rage? when you begin to talk about the things of the Lord? It's happening more and more, and the Bible predicts it. It says, in the last days, men will accumulate to themselves those who tickle their ears. In other words, say what they want to hear, not what they need. Did you hear about the guy who was taking golf lessons? He was standing there with a club, and the pro would give him different tips and said, you need to do it this way. And every tip he gave him, the man said, no, I think I should do it this way. After a couple of controversies, the pro said, you know, you may be right. Do it that way. Do it that way. And after an hour, he took his money. And a guy who was watching all of this came up to the pro and said, what is this? How come you took his money? You didn't even give him any lessons. You started saying, here's what you should do. And then when he disagreed, you you began to agree with him. Why did you do that? And the pro said, because I learned a long time ago. You can never sell lessons to a man who only wants to buy echoes. That's what we see here. As soon as Stephen finishes speaking, the crowd wails hysterically. They do to Stephen what they did to Jesus. Now think of this. Saul wasn't at the cross, but he's at this stoning. And he doesn't stand idly by, he sanctions the stoning. He is the reason that Stephen dies. Fourth, notice the necessity. Look at verses 59 and 60 of chapter 7. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said that this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. Years ago, I was just starting in ministry, and there was a group of people who were going to be joining the church on a Sunday morning. And we had spent a class together. We had talked about all these questions about two weeks before. But I just thought I should just make sure they knew the questions again. We had wide discussion. So I just started with the first question. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving God's displeasure and without hope except for God's sovereign mercy? And one older woman looked at me and said, no. I said, no what? She said, no, I'm not a sinner. It's five minutes before a worship service starts. Now, I don't know what you would have done, but I did what... Came naturally. I said, you know, something two weeks ago you knew you were a sinner. Let's go with that. (laughs) Lloyd Ogilvie writes Next to the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the conversion of Paul was the most important event in human history. Next to the death, resurrection, and ascension, Of Jesus Christ, the most important event in human history is the conversion of Saul. For without it, the Christian church would have remained a Jewish sect. It would never have grown into a worldwide movement. Most of the church's theology would never have been written. Its destiny would never be realized. So think of this. The second most important event in human history, the thing that propelled the church's growth, was the death of Stephen. Have you ever thought about that? What did God use? What did God use to put Stephen to death? Saul. Saul. And what did God use to begin Saul to walk with Jesus? The grace of Stephen. The grace of God in Stephen. What does Stephen do before he dies? It's different than what Jesus did. Jesus forgave them first and then committed his spirit. But Stephen commits his spirit and then forgives. He says, Lord Jesus, forgive those who persecute me. Do not hold their sin against them. Do you think God answered that prayer? How did he answer it? Within one chapter, Saul is on the ground and Jesus is saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? In what way did Saul persecute Jesus? By persecuting Stephen. You know what Jesus says? In effect, you messed with him, you've messed with me. For I and Stephen are one. Not only that, when Stephen was praying for forgiveness for those who murdered him, you, Saul, are the one I applied my forgiveness to. A few years ago, I spoke of a Catholic woman in California. There's a rumor that she had visions of Jesus. And so her bishop in that area decided he'd make a visit. And he said, he got with her in her house and said, Madam, I understand that you're having visions of Jesus. Is this true? She said, yes. He said, well, I want you to do a favor for me. The next time you have a vision of Jesus, would you ask him what my last confessional sins were? Woman woman's stunned. What? You want me to ask Jesus to tell me what your sins were that you confessed in confession? Bishop nodded and said, yeah, by all means. Ten days go by. She calls him and said, I had another one. He's sitting across from her and said, so you had another vision? She said, yes. Did you, ask what, did you ask him what I asked you to ask him? Yes. Did you ask what my sins were in the last confession? Yes. Well, what did he say, the bishop said. The woman reached out and took the bishop's hand and said, these are his exact words. I forget That's where the walk with Jesus always begins. While He forgets all of our sin, when you walk with Him, you don't forget your sin. You never forget where you came from. And you never forget that where you came from is who you are. Without Him. But with Him, He begins to make you just like Him. That's what happened to Mary Johnson. That's how she could come to love the killer of her son. That's how she could say, You, Israel, are now my spiritual son. Come live with me. That's what happened to Brennan Manning on this Amish farm. He said, in that one moment, I came to understand what it means to be seized, gripped by a great affection. I came to understand that he loves me for who I am, not who I should be. That's exactly what happened in Saul's life. Jesus forgave him and forgot. But Paul would never forget. What do you think he means in his last letter, 2 Timothy, where he says in the opening chapter, I am the chief of sinners. Whenever he referred to himself in terms of sin, he'd always say, I was a persecutor of the church. What's he mean? I... Killed one who is full of grace and power. That's why there's always such gratitude in the face of such grace. That's where the walk begins. And the walk grows as we become more and more grateful for what he's done for us. Think about that. Amen.